If I told a friend of mine that her breath smells really bad and I find that unattractive, she would probably take offense. But if I told her that her breath smells so bad that if given the choice between kissing her and eating a pile of garbage, you would find every man in a five-mile radius shopping for groceries in the local landfill, she might let out a chuckle. This burn is still offensive. It's actually meaner than the matter-of-fact statement. But given the right circumstances and environment, especially if my friend was expecting a roast, this second statement has a better chance of getting a laugh than the first. In this episode of The Laugh Track, we'll be exploring roast comedy, which Wikipedia defines as a form of humor in which a specific individual is subjected to jokes at his or her expense, intended to amuse the event's wider audience. However, if roasts were meant to amuse only the wider audience, why would anyone agree to be the roastee? No one is so altruistic that he would let himself be bullied for the entertainment of others. So what else is going on here? In this episode, I'll give you a brief history of the genre, and then I'll break down what roast comedy is, what makes it different from plain old insults, and how comedians write roasts so that people laugh instead of cry. However, this doesn't always work out, so we'll also talk about times when comedians took things too far and ended up dishing out more insult than comedy. Let's get started. If you've seen or read any of Shakespeare's work, you're certainly familiar with his fool or court jester. Court jesters were real employees of a nobleman or monarch tasked with entertaining the court. Often this involved some sort of mockery of current events and people. In fact, in an age of censorship, jesters were given the privilege to mock freely without being punished by the law. Now, what would be an example of a medieval burn? Listen to a character from Shakespeare's Timon of Athens call someone's mom a bitch. You're a dog. Thy mother's of my generation. What shay if I be a dog? So not only was mockery around for a long, long time, yo mama jokes have appeared in Shakespeare. Speaking of yo mama, she's so dumb, when we told her to play the dozens, she grabbed two sticks and started whacking a carton of eggs like a xylophone. Okay, sorry, that was bad. What I'm trying to say is that to understand the origins of both rap music and roast comedy, we need to learn about playing the dozens. Some MCs get their notoriety through battling, meaning that back in the days we used to call it the dozens. Slaves were sold one by one unless there was a defect. Their leg was hurt, her arm was uh, severed, mental issues, maybe sick. Those people were sold um, in a dozen. So slaves would start going back and forth with each other saying, uh, well, your head's bigger than your neck and that makes you a lollipop. Ah, your mother is so this, I could do that. Ah, and everybody would laugh at you, which then eventually became the dozens. The trash talking tradition continued through the 60s. Power to the people. Your mama. Right up to the present. I have no more campaigns to run. I know, because I won both of them. <laughs> Yo mama. That's the dozens. While the origins of the game, as explained by rapper KRS-One and the TV show Blackish, are not as clear as they make it seem, it's quite easy to trace rap battles and roast battles back to their origins of the Dirty Dozens. TV roast battles, like Jeff Ross Presents Roast Battle or Roast Battle UK, are almost exactly like playing the dozens, just a bit more organized and broadcast on television. If we read the rules of roast battles, 
original material only, nothing is off limits except for physical contact, and at the end of every battle we hug, it's no wonder that the creator of these shows, Brian Moses, who is black, drew his inspiration from playing the dozens. Let's go out with a bang. Let's have a laugh at your expense, shall we? Remember, they're just jokes. We're all gonna die soon, and there's no sequel. So, yeah. Insult comedy is exactly what the name suggests. Insulting somebody or something in a humorous way. In the first example I gave, about the woman with the bad breath, I briefly mentioned that the comedic line was actually meaner than the unfunny one, but it still turned out less offensive. The rude insult was direct and accurate, while the funny one was indirect and highly exaggerated. Everybody in the audience, including the target, knows that no real person would choose eating food from a landfill over kissing a woman with bad breath. By exaggerating and suggesting that some people would, I'm actually downplaying the negativity of my statement because everybody knows that what I'm saying is untrue. Verbal abuse is hurtful because it directly attacks the insecurities we have. Roasts are funny because while they are based on a nugget of truth, the roast itself is typically false and not nearly as pointed. A common way comedians achieve this effect is through exaggeration. In his parody TV show Nathan For You, comedian Nathan Fielder perfectly explains this concept. Caricatures are insult comedy. In the category of insult comedy, just to show you what's currently popular right now, here, just watch. I like you, Jason Alexander. I find you sexy. Kiss me, you fat I've always wanted to see what Jerry Seinfeld's tastes like. I showed him a clip of the wildly popular Comedy Central roast, which proved that to be a hit in insult comedy, the meaner you are, the better. Exaggeration is just one tool used to convert an otherwise disparaging remark into a funny one. Another strategy comedians employ is writing so that the punchline is implied rather than explicitly stated. This goes counter to the typical stand-up routine of a premise and a punchline where the joke is written to be as clear as it can be. In a comedy roast, many jokes are written so that the audience must have some sort of background knowledge and ability to piece together each part of the joke before they appreciate the punchline. Sometimes this is very straightforward, and other times it requires a certain level of background information on a particular person, event, or cultural phenomenon. Here are two examples of this concept at play, and they both have to do with a particular person's peculiar appearance. Little nugget, Pete Davidson. It's hard to recognize him when he's not on SNL or on an adventure with the man in the yellow hat. In this example, singer and roaster Jewel compares Pete Davidson's appearance to the cartoon monkey Curious George, a reference most any American would pick up on. This is not as straightforward as just saying Davidson looks like a monkey, but it certainly is funnier. Part of the reason audiences like this kind of joke is because it makes them feel smart. We feel proud of ourselves for being able to take Jewel's literal words and translate them to the meaning she wants to convey. The more sophisticated the joke is, the smarter we feel when we're able to figure it out and laugh at it. The consequence of a highly implicit joke is that with each additional layer of sophistication, less people are going to be able to decode it. This means less people will find the joke funny. In the same roast session, David Spade also makes fun of Davidson's unusual facial features and while the joke can be understood by anyone, it takes a more thorough knowledge of the celebrities at the roast to appreciate its full extent. Is Pete white? Is he black? Ann Coulter needs to know so she can decide if she hates him. 
Without knowing who Ann Coulter is, this joke is still funny, but it might leave you wondering a few things. Did David Spade just happen to portray this random woman as racist? Does Coulter have a history of only dating black men, and that's why she would care which race Davidson is? The truth is that Ann Coulter is a conservative political pundit who opposes laws against hate crimes and is an advocate of some conspiracy theory called the White Genocide. Knowing this provides more meaning onto Spade's assumption that Coulter's perception of Davidson would be different were he to be black. Covering insults in layers of sophistication helps the audience focus on the joke rather than the truthful affront. Spade did this quite well, and he also used another strategy to make his roast funny instead of mean. Along with exaggeration and implication, comedians will also dilute the sting of the burn by disparaging more than one person at once. Spade did this brilliantly by shifting his attention from Davidson to Coulter, which got him off the hook for his jab at Davidson. By insulting two or more people at once, the comedian lets the audience, and the targets, decide onto whom they would like to focus their attention, negative or positive. If you're being insulted simultaneously with another person, you can reconfigure the joke in your mind to be more about the other person than about yourself. The audience gets the same privilege. In the example from before, a liberal with no tolerance for intolerance can applaud Spade for calling out Coulter on her views, while a fan of the author would choose to laugh at Davidson's vague face. After Spade leaves the stage, Davidson does the same thing right back at him. Whoa, Macaulay Culkin looks worse than I thought. <laughs> By comparing Spade to Macaulay Culkin, Davidson makes the joke more tolerable than if he had just called Spade ugly. Davidson also uses exaggeration, because Spade looks nowhere nearly as bad as Culkin did in the photo Davidson is referencing, a photo you'd had to have seen before in order to appreciate Davidson's caricature of Spade. Even in such a short joke like this one, Davidson employs all three of the principles we've talked about to make his joke humorous, not hurtful. All right. By now I've talked so much about how to make a joke inoffensive, but I've left out the most important component in making sure that a roast is well received. Consent. In her examination of the insult comedy genre, Vicki Baker from the BBC notes that as diverse as the participants can be, one factor is crucial. Consent. People put themselves forward in the spirit of being a good sport. Brian Moses, who created the Roast Battle Show for Comedy Central, says that there are three parties involved in a roast. The comedian, the target, and the audience. And everybody has to be on board. This is why pre-planned roast sessions and roast battles work, while roasting random people on the street does not. If you're uncertain about that, just ask Markel Carter, known online as Plain Potatoes, why he pled guilty to eight misdemeanors in a plea deal on some 27 charges against him, ranging from trespassing to assault. Huh? I'm asking you to leave my store. It's private property. Understand? You need to calm down, okay, Big Hero you Six. Need to get out of here right now. Let's you go. You are go. huge. Are you gonna hit out. me with that stick? No, no, no. I'm asking you to get out of my store. It's private property. I need you to calm down. Okay. Okay. You had a long door. Yeah, no, long... no, I know. You're yeah. so smart. You're so clever. I'm smart enough to know that your hairline is receding. Yeah. Okay. I'm smart enough for that. Carter was dumb enough to upload these incriminating clips onto his now-suspended social media platforms, thinking they would get him famous. This dude thought that non-consensual harassment of strangers was making comedy the same way frat bros think non-consensual harassment of co-eds is making love. It's not the same though, and if someone tells you to stop, you stop. Another issue with roasting strangers is that you don't know them. You don't know which topics are prime roasting material, and which are too sensitive to joke about. 
When comedians want to be part of Brian Moses' roast battle, he asks them to choose their own opponent. He says that the two of them are often good friends, and that makes a better show, because people can go beyond surface insults and they also know where not to go. Markel Plain Potatoes Carter is a good example of what insult comedy can be like if you don't know your roastee. The majority of his jokes revolve around physical characteristics, which are very surface level. However, we heard good examples of this type of burn with Pete Davidson. Carter, on the other hand, is completely uncreative with his insults, opting instead to compare people with cartoon characters in an extremely boring, has anyone told you you look like X format. Do not record. I, I, have, I will call the cops. I, 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 yeah. Get out. Why are your arms so long? You look like a skinny groove from Despicable Stop Me. Stop talking to me. Stop talking to me. This is harassment. This is harassment. Okay, I have no. Okay, I have no. So that's not very funny. He doesn't use any of the strategies of exaggeration, sophistication, or diffusion that we talked about. Instead of simply making a comparison, a good joke built on the same premise could be, man, has anyone ever told you you have so much in common with Steve Carell? I think if they made a live-action Despicable Me, they should cast you as Gru instead. This is actually funny, because it follows the structure of a joke. I created an expectation that by comparing him to a lovable actor, I was complimenting the man, and then I subverted that expectation by instead comparing him to an unattractive cartoon. All the while, I made it silly instead of hurtful by exaggerating the premise. No one's actually making a live-action Despicable Me, so this whole situation is make-believe. And I made the insult, that the guy looks like Gru and is thus unattractive, implied instead of stating it explicitly. Before being charged with his crimes and suspended off his social media, this guy actually had a sizable following online. I don't understand how anyone can watch his videos without being filled with anxiety, let alone find them funny. Everything he does goes counter to the rules of comedy, and most of the time it seems like he's trying to start a fight, not get a laugh. Speaking to the theme of consent, I've somewhat dichotomized the issue. Although black and white in many scenarios, consent does have a fuzzy gray area when it comes to insult comedy. On the one hand, we have plain potatoes literally harassing his victims, and on the other, we have the perfectly orchestrated Comedy Central roasts. But in between, there are a lot of scenarios in which consent is implied but not exactly given, and it's difficult for comedians to know where the limits are. This happens a lot during awards shows where celebrity hosts are expected to comment on the nominees, and typically this involves some sort of light burns. In the beginning of this episode, we heard Ricky Gervais warn the actors at the 2020 Golden Globe Awards that he was going to make jokes at their expense, before proceeding to rip them apart for the entertainment of the 18.4 million viewers at home. Some actors laughed, others scorned, but all put up with Ricky Gervais's jabs at them because it was simply something that came with the territory. You go to your award show, you get made fun of, you win or you lose, and then you go home. Maybe actors would have preferred to be not made fun of, but no one was harassed or bullied in the making of the Golden Globes, no matter how many groans and glares Ricky Gervais may have gotten. However, the roast dish at award shows are not always smooth sailing, and nobody knows this better than actor and comedian Will Farrell. In the 1998 edition of the ESPY Awards, sports' version of the Oscars, Pharrell took the stage dressed as baseball commentator Harry Carey and made jokes at the athlete's expense, most notably at Broncos quarterback John Elway. Hi everybody! Harry Carey here! It's a thrill to be here at Radio City Music Hall for the Academy Awards! 
I gotta say, I hope Booty Call takes home a few Oscars tonight. No, no, Harry, this, this is the ESPY Awards. Boy, it's a thrill to look out into the audience and see all those celebrities. Hi, there's John Elway. You just won the Super Bowl. How about going a little nuts and getting those teeth fixed? Oh. The point of the bit is clearly to make fun of the aging baseball commentator, but this is lost on Elway, who was seen on camera giving Pharrell a stink eye that could rival that of Jada Pinkett Smith. This disapproval by Elway was a real slap in the face to the producers at ESPN, who swore for years after that they would do anything to ensure they never had another Will Ferrell, Harry Carey incident at the ESPYs. This incident provides a clear example of the importance of consent over any of the other factors that lessen the blow of a comedic dig. Pharrell uses the strategy of diffusing his meanness by teasing many athletes, and it's clear by his character that the overall joke is that of a confused and aging Harry Carey. However, Elway was not feeling it that night, so none of it mattered, and that joke will go down as the second worst thing a man named Will has done at an awards show. <laughs> oh, that's hot. That's hot. So that is roast comedy. It's history, it's do's, and it's don'ts. In another episode, I'll dissect insult comedy's more timid brother, teasing, and explain the evolutionary psychology behind who, how, and why we tease. But for today, I want to thank you for listening, and I'll leave you with this. What's the difference between a wet raccoon and Donald J. Trump's hair? A wet raccoon doesn't have seven billion fucking dollars in the bank. Thank you for listening. I've left a link with all my references as well as further reading in the description of this episode. I hope you stay tuned for more episodes like this and have a great day.